Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 John, chapter 3. 1 John 3. We'll be reading verses 4 through 10. Uh, one of the most popular game shows is uh, called To Tell the Truth, and I was kind of surprised to learn that this show actually is still still running. It's been going for like six or seven decades now, and uh, <clears throat> it goes way back to the, the 50s, and here's how the game is played. There are four contestants, and uh, before those four contestants um, appear three people, three individuals who each claim to be the same person. And generally they're claiming to be a, a famous person, but a famous person that maybe people wouldn't recognize, so it's not clear actually who is the person that they're talking about. And so the contestants are then given the opportunity to ask questions to these three people to try to figure out who actually is the, the person they claim to be. So I went on YouTube and found an old To Tell the Truth episode, and uh, it was Dr. Seuss in this case. Three people claiming to be Dr. Seuss, and the contestants asked these questions to try to figure out which one was the real Dr. Seuss. And then at the end, the contestants uh, vote. You know, I think it's number one. Someone else says, I, I think it's number two. And then we get to the kind of climax of the game, and we hear this phrase that has kind of entered into our popular culture, a very famous phrase, where the host of the game says, will the real Dr. Seuss please stand up? And then there's always this little pause, you know, nobody stands up for a couple of seconds, and then somebody kind of acts like he stands up, and then another one acts like he stands up, and then finally, the real Dr. Seuss stands up, and it becomes evident, it becomes clear who the genuine article is, who the real person is, and it also becomes clear who the two imposters are. And as we look at this passage here in 1 John chapter 3, that's kind of what John is addressing here. He, he's asking a question, will the real Christians please stand up? Is there a way to tell the difference between the genuine article, the real deal, the person who truly is a Christian, and those who might be imposters or those who might be pretending to be Christians and are not? We're going through um, a study on the book of 1 John here at New Life, and uh, we've reached chapter 3, and the question before us is this, are you a true Christian or not? And is there a way to tell that? Is there a way to discern that? And according to this passage, yes, there is. And so, 1 John 3, I'll be reading verses 4 through 10. If you want to stand for the reading of God's word, um, <clears throat> John, uh, you're going to notice as I read this, there's a lot of repetition in this passage. Uh, in fact, what John does is kind of makes an argument in verses 4 through 7 and then repeats it in verses 8 through 10. So 4 through 7 and 8 through 10 are kind of repetitions. He says these things in slightly different ways, but kind of makes the same point twice. So 1 John 3, starting with verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
you know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. God, we do ask for your Holy Spirit to bless now the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, there are different kinds of, of thinkers. Some people are called black and white thinkers, and some people are called, called kind of more gray area thinkers. Black and white thinkers are people who say, you know, it's either right or it's wrong. And kind of the more gray area people are people who can say something is right and wrong at the same time. Um, John is a very black and white thinker. I mean, his categories are very clearly divided. And you see this in verse 10 in particular. Um, he says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. He's making these two very clear categories. Some people are among the children of God and some people are among the children of the devil and there is no other category than that. There's no third category. There's no in-between category. It's black and white in John's mind. You're one or the other. You know, we have a, a lot of names that sometimes people will use to refer to themselves. You know, they might say, well, I'm a seeker, I'm an agnostic, I'm an atheist, I'm a Protestant, I'm a Catholic, I'm born again, I'm evangelical. And what John says is, you're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. Those are the two options. In other words, you're the real deal or you're an imposter. And so this is the question that uh, John wants us to answer and to think about regarding ourselves as we look through this passage. So what John tells us is what characterizes the real Christian. So as we think of this, uh, this question, will the real Christian please stand up? First of all, here's what characterizes the real Christian. He or she is a person who understands sin, understands what it is, understands what it's like. Two things to think about here. First of all, he understands what it is. Look at verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Very clear definition of sin. The Bible describes sin actually in a number of different ways. Romans 14, 23, it says whatever we do that's not of faith, it's sin. James 4, 17, it says when we know the right thing to do and we don't do it, that it's sin. And now we have another definition uh, from John, sin is lawlessness. Now, what does he mean by that? What is lawlessness? I think we have to expand our understanding a little bit here because we're probably tempted to think that what he means is just simply breaking a law, just disobeying one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, that, that that's all this is. When we break the law, we're practicing lawlessness. And, and that's certainly true. 
But I think what John has in mind here is something more than that. It's, it's not just an action lawlessness. It's more an attitude. It's more a state of mind. It's more a whole way of looking at the world and looking at God. Karen Job's uh, commentary. Karen Job's excellent commentator, by the way. I'd highly recommend her to you, her commentary. Terry on First John is very good, and she says this, to be lawless does not mean simply to break the law. It means to disdain the very idea of a law to which one must submit. It's hating the idea that there is a moral law out there to which I am accountable. It's like in the book of Judges. Do you remember that repeated phrase where it says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes? That's a perfect example of lawlessness, morality, right and wrong, invented, made up in people's minds according to what people prefer and the way they would like to live. And we can see examples of this kind of thing. A very simple example would be um, parents. You know what it's like when you tell your, your child, particularly your young child, give that child a command, tell that child not to do something, and you can see almost immediately this kind of resistance to what you're telling them to do. Even if what you're telling them not to do is something that is actually a benefit for them. They don't want to do it. They want to resist it. They want to defy authority. And that begins at a very young age in children. And so that's a, a very simple answer, simple example that, that we see in many places. But, but we see it in a more complex way as well. This guy's name is uh, Thomas Nagel, a famous philosopher from New York University, who said this. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And that's a very frank admission, isn't it, from, from an atheist. But this captures so well the attitude of lawlessness that is at the root of atheism. It's this idea that I don't want there to be a God because I don't want there to be a moral authority. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want to live my life the way I want to live. Lawlessness is when we raise our fist at God and we say, God, you don't have any right over my life. Go away. Go away. Leave me alone. I can handle this by myself. Maybe some of you are in that place right now in your life, or maybe you've been in that place. You know what it is to have this lawless attitude toward God. That's what John is describing here and defining as sin. <clears throat> it's lawlessness. But then he goes on and tells us, in addition, um, where sin comes from. Look at verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So now we're getting to the origin of sin, where sin came from. It came from Satan, from the devil. And this is what the devil has been doing forever, from the beginning, it says. I think John's probably thinking of the Garden of Eden, where the serpent comes onto the scene and entices Adam and Eve to rebel against God. That's where sin started. Satan has been sinning ever since. And when we sin, friends, we're being like the devil. Now that sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? To, to say that, you know, if, if you sin, you're being satanic. I mean, that, that just sounds severe. 
doesn't it? But you know, look what Jesus said when he was talking to the disciples, or excuse me, to the Pharisees in John chapter 8. He's speaking directly to the Pharisees. These are religious leaders, and he says, you are of your father, the devil, Pharisees, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, there's that phrase again, and does not stand in the truth. So this is a strong, <coughs> strong statement that John is making. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now, now let me be clear about what this is not saying. This is not saying that if you struggle with sin that you are of the devil. You'll notice the word practice there. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And we're going to talk a little bit more in a moment about what that means to practice sin. But the principle here that John is telling us is this, that what you do reveals who you are regardless of what you say, regardless of your disclaimers, and regardless of your excuses, what you do, the way you live your life, the way you practice your life, the, the pattern that characterizes the overall tenor of your life reveals who you are. You know, you hear people sometimes, they'll commit some sin, like when all that sexual harassment stuff was going on and people were uh, accused of sexual harassment and very often they would admit it, but they would very often say something like, I'm so sorry, but that wasn't the real me. You know, that, that's not really who I am. Well, <laughs> you did it. So to some degree, yes, it is. Yes, it is. What we do, the way our, we live our lives, reveals who we are. If you look at verse 10, uh, again, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You know, if it barks, it's probably a dog. If it practices sin, it's probably of the devil. But the Christian says this, oh, how I love your law. Oh, God. That's the cry of the Christian. I, I love your law. The Christian enters into an entirely different relationship with the law of God. The Christian doesn't see the law of God as something to be resisted, as something that's a burden, but something that is loved. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect, and we'll get to that in this next point. The real Christian is the one who understands sin. The real Christian also is the one who practices righteousness. The real Christian is the one who practices righteousness. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous, as God is righteous. The one who practices righteousness resembles God. Now, how do we go about practicing righteousness? There's, there's two aspects to this that I want us to see that work in balance with each other. And the first, there is your role in practicing righteousness. You have a responsibility in practicing righteousness. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That's your responsibility. That's your role. You, you need to abide in Christ. What does that mean, abide? We've seen that word come up several times in John. It means to make your settled home. You remember that definition from a few Sundays ago? To make your settled home in some place. It means, more simply, to remain. The one who remains, the one who abides in Jesus, that is, the one who 
continues to cling to Jesus, no matter how small that faith might be, the one who says, Jesus is my hope, I'm resting in him alone, the one who cries out to Jesus and asks for Jesus' help, the one who brings his or her sin to Jesus, the one who listens to Jesus speak through his word, the one who seeks to comply and submit his or her life to the lordship of Christ. That's what it is to abide in Jesus. And the promise here in verse 6 is that the one who does that cannot keep on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. You, You can't do that. You can't cherish sin and cherish Jesus at the same time. They displace each other. They push each other push, push each other out. To the degree that you're cherishing Jesus is the degree to which you will not cherish sin. And in verse 6, he, he goes on and says that the one who keeps on sinning is showing that he's not seen God and haven't even known him. Haven't known or seen God. In other words, revealed as an imposter. Now, it gets a little more thorny in verse 9. And this is kind of a a controversial verse uh, over which much has been written. Verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So it raises an interesting question, which is this. Is this saying that if you're a Christian, you can't sin? Is this saying that it's impossible for a Christian to commit a sin? Or is it saying that if you do commit a sin, it means you're not a Christian? (laughs) I mean, that's what it seems to suggest. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Now, the King James Version says it like this. No one born of God commits sin. So that's a little harder to deal with. Uh, A lot of this depends on the way the, the Greek is translated into English. The ESV here says no one born of God, makes a practice of sinning. That's a very important translation based on the verb tense there in the Greek. No one makes a practice of sinning. If you go back to verse 6, you'll see something similar. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning. No one makes a practice of it. But we've we got to think, is, what is actually John meaning? You'll recall at the beginning of this study that we saw John say stuff like this. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So John can't be saying it's impossible for a Christian to sin. Because he says if you say that, you're deceiving yourself. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says something similar. I'm writing these things to you so that you won't sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. There's John holding out the possibility that, yes, sin does happen. So... You know, sometimes people read these books of the Bible and they get so critical, they, they think the writers of the Bible are so thick-headed that they can't see a very obvious contradiction. I mean, John's not contradicting himself here. We have to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. These passages will help us to interpret what John is saying in chapter 3. And so here, I think, is what John is saying. Again, it gets to this word practice. No one who practices sin... Uh, has been born of God. Let's, let's think of an example. Um, some of you are golfers. And when you golf, if you love the sport of golf, you, you practice golfing, right? You, you go out and you, 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 you hit the tee shot and you practice your putt and you, you practice your chip shot and 
You work at those things. You practice them. You're trying to get better at those things. But even as you're practicing those things, it doesn't mean that the ball isn't sometimes going to land in the drink. It doesn't mean that the ball is not going to land in the sand trap, right? I mean, that happens. You don't want that to happen, but it does. And sometimes you go out and play golf, and it happens almost all the time, it seems. It just happens constantly. You're not trying to do that, but that's, that's what happens. Even though you're practicing and seeking to get better, as a golfer, and when that happens and the ball goes in the water or the sand trap, I mean, what's your first reaction to that? Is, I don't want that to happen again. And so the next time you go out, you do everything you can to try to keep it from happening, but, but sometimes it does. And I think that's a pretty good illustration of what John has in mind here. The person who practices righteousness, that's the person who's seeking to get better as a Christian. But that doesn't mean you're not going to drop a few balls in the water, or the sand trap. The Christian is not the one without sin, but the one who practices righteousness, seeks to get better at it. The one who's not the son of God is the one, yeah, the one who's not a child of God is the one who's practicing sin, the one who's seeking to improve, the one who's getting better at lying, getting better at lusting, getting better at his idolatry, getting better in his anger and his defiance. That's the difference. John is not saying that a Christian can never commit a sin. He is saying that the Christian who practices righteousness will do everything he can to keep it from happening again. So it's a call to us to examine our lives. I mean, what are you practicing in your life? You know, morally speaking, what is it you're giving your effort to? What, what is it that you intend to accomplish? What are your goals? Is that even a, 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 an issue for you? When you think of your relationship with God and the righteousness that exists in your life, the real Christian practices righteousness. So that's, that's your role. Now, the other side of this is God's role. Thank the good Lord that we're not doing this by ourselves. Right? If you look at verse 9, it says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God, because God's seed abides in him. What, what does that mean? Well, it, it's, it's true of whoever is born of God. That seems pretty plain. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning because, for, God's seed abides in him. It's like when you're born physically, there's a sense in which your father's seed abides in you. I mean, you carry the nature of your father in you by virtue of being born to your father. You, his DNA is, is in you and has something to do with your character and your nature and who you are. And it's the exact same thing when we talk about being born again. The Christian who's born again has the seed of God in him. That is God's DNA. God's nature now becomes part of your nature. And the encouraging thing here in verse 9 is that that seed abides. Remember the definition of that? Remains. God's seed remains in him. That's why the one born of God can't make a practice of sinning. I mean, in the same way that you cannot flush or purge your father's DNA or nature out of you, nor can you purge or flush 
God's DNA out of you if you've been born again by the Spirit of God. You can't be unborn is basically what John is saying. I mean, you can die. If you die, I guess your father's not your father anymore, but you can't be unborn. You can't undo what you've inherited from your father. And when you're born again spiritually, it's the same thing. This is a wonderful encouragement here. When you're born again, God's seed is in you, and it's not going anywhere. It's part of you now, and it will always be part of you. And that's what gives you the impulse to obey. That's what gives you the urge, the desire to keep practicing righteousness. And so you'll see this in other places in the Bible, like in 1 Corinthians 15. Notice this balance. Paul says this, I worked harder than any of them. He did it. He practiced righteousness. He worked hard at it. But it was not I, it was the grace of God that was in me. I mean, you'll see this all over the New Testament, this this balance. I'm doing this, but when I'm doing this, I see that God's doing this. Because God's doing it, I'm doing it. And they both work in tandem. They both work in balance. That's God's role. I mean, you know what it's like, friends. You, 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 you tell a lie. You blow up at your kids. You get angry at your wife. You slander someone's character. You look at something on the internet that you shouldn't have been looking at. And you get that unsettled feeling just deep down in your spirit. You just, you just don't feel right. That's conviction. That's God's seed in you, convicting you, giving you unrest, making you so you can't rest until you make that right, until you kneel before God and confess that sin, until you go to the person you've offended and make it right with that person. That's God's role, and he will not let you go. He will hound you with guilt until you make it right. And that's a blessing. That's a good thing so that you can continue to practice righteousness and have assurance that you're a child of God. Well, one last thing we see is that the real Christian trusts Jesus. The real Christian trusts Jesus. Um, Two things here as well. Uh, First of all, we see Jesus destroys the work of the devil, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You know, very often we think of of salvation and, and, well, we think of the work of Jesus as if it's simply wrapped up in saving souls for heaven, and certainly that's part of it. but, But Jesus also engaged in battle with the devil. That's another big part of the gospel, that when Jesus died on the cross and was risen from the dead, he destroyed the devil in his work. It says in Hebrews 2.14 that um, through his death, he destroyed the one who has power over death, and that is the devil. So that's one aspect of Jesus' work, but but here's the the second thing. In verse 5, here's also what Jesus did. For, For those who are perhaps feeling guilty about their lack of righteousness and their, um, their, their lack of energy and interest in righteousness. Look, here's what it says. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, you know, verse 5, that he appeared to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. When Jesus came and died on the cross, he 
paid for your sins. He atoned for your sins. He covered your sins by taking those sins upon himself so that they would be removed from your record. Just like it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the essence of the gospel. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He took away your sin. He took it away. He removed it. Let, let me give an example, kind of a picture of what that's really like. Uh, there's a guy named Jack Miller, and Jack's a, <clears throat> uh, he was a Presbyterian writer, theologian, and he told this story of, of a woman he knew who was traumatized by a childhood experience when she was a little girl. She remembers that she was out in the backyard with her sisters and her mother, and they were washing the shirts of her father. And they had all these nice, bright, clean shirts, and um, the woman's sisters were taking these shirts and hanging them up on the clothesline. And this woman, again, remembering that she was a little kid, so she was very small, and she couldn't reach the clothesline. She couldn't get the, the shirt up on the clothesline. And so she wanted to lay it out so that it could dry, so she laid it over a dirty, rusty wheelbarrow. And it got filthy dirty. And her father came home and was furious. Couldn't believe that she would do this with his clean white shirt. And just that anger and fury from her father just scarred this woman for life. And so, you know, later on she's talking about it. And um, the person talking to her says, what do you think Jesus would have done with that shirt? If Jesus were there and saw that dirty shirt on the wheelbarrow, what would he have done? And she said, I don't know. And the person said, here's what he would have done. He, he would have picked it up and worn it. He would have put it on. He would have taken your error, your mistake, your foolishness, and worn it. That, that, that's, that's a picture of the gospel. That's what this passage is telling us. The one who knew no sin was made sin. Our sin was put on him. And then by receiving him, his righteousness is given to us. Jesus came to remove sin, to take away sin. Not just, though, the guilt of our sin, but to take away the practice of sin in our lives as well. And that's what John is, is communicating to us here, that there should be a difference, there should be a distinction between children of God and children of the devil, and it has to do with our practice of righteousness. So, again, here's the question. Verse 10, some are children of God, some are children of the devil. Who are you? Who are you? You might be thinking, well, I would, I would love to be a child of God. How do I do that? Here's how you do that. You repent of your lawlessness and trust in Christ. Take Jesus as your Savior. That's all. Repent of your lawlessness and take Jesus. And you can do that. You can do that today. You can do it right now. You'll have time to think about that as we come to the table here uh, in just a moment. We'll have a time of silence for you to reflect on that. Um, which are you? So let me ask you this final question. It's the title of our sermon. Uh, will the real Christians please stand up? We have an opportunity to do that. Let's do it. Let's stand and get ready to sing.
Father, we are thankful to you for your word. Sometimes your word says hard things to us, but um, we are grateful, Lord, that you speak clearly and honestly and lovingly to us. And thank you for a great Savior who takes away our sin and has defeated the devil for us. In Jesus' name, amen.